Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Clinical Science Podcast. My name is Dr. Matthew Panarella, back with another episode. This will be my last episode before the holidays, uh, so let me say happy holidays to everyone, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, what have you. We're going into our uh, second full year here at the Clinical Science Podcast. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. I hope you have. Hope the quality of the podcast, especially the audio, has gotten better over time. And today's episode is a continuation of the core vaccines for dogs, which I will reference um, at the end when I talk about the links a little bit more. And today's topic is infectious canine hepatitis, abbreviated ICH. Infectious canine hepatitis is almost exactly what it sounds like, is a viral disease of dogs caused by the canine adenovirus 1 virus. And the, that number 1 is important. It'll come into play rather shortly here why that number 1 is important. The history of this virus, it was detected in the late 40s here in the United States, and then later on it was detected all across the world. So it is a worldwide disease of dogs. And species affected, it affects the Canidae family when subfamily Canine, which are dogs, foxes, wolves, coyotes, etc. And the, the disease, at this point I can say, probably the reservoir is wildlife. And uh, I will reference again at the end an article I came across on PubMed based on um, coyote surveillance of coyotes in Yellowstone National Park for canine viruses. So that's a really fascinating article to read. How do we prevent this disease in our in our pet dogs? So it is a part of the core vaccinations of DA2, PPV, D being distemper, A2 being that adenovirus, but it's adenovirus 2. Let me explain that momentarily. We have parvovirus, parainfluenza. Those are the core vaccines recommended for all dogs, especially as puppies. So in the vaccine strain, we use canine adenovirus 2. So if you remember back, infectious canine hepatitis is caused by CAV1. In the vaccine strain, it's CAV2. And the reason that is, is because number one, there's cross protection between CAV2 and CAV1, and the same is true. There's cross-protection between CAV1 and CAV2, although CAV2 doesn't really cause clinical disease. And CAV2 is not shed into the urine, so dogs are not infectious when they're vaccinated with CAV2. Their bodies mount an immune response, and then they're protected from CAV1 or infectious canine hepatitis. Recommended vaccines is the same as I had mentioned at distemper, six to eight weeks, booster at 10 to 12 weeks, booster at 14 to 16 weeks. It definitely should be repeated in one year. And then most products are going to be labeled for every three-year boosters. Again, not recommended to vaccinate pregnant females. And um, have two, as a coincidence, we will talk about this disease in another podcast, but infectious training tracheobronchitis or kennel cough as it's commonly known. CAV2 is a component of infectious tracheobronchitis. So kennel cough has many causes, not just, you know, one virus, one bacteria. It's a multifactorial, multi-organism cause disease. 
CAV2 is a component of that. So if your dog is vaccinated with CAV2, then it won't be an issue, even if your dog were to get kennel cough. Okay, so that was some of the gen generics, general pieces of information. Let's get into some specifics. So transmission of infectious canine hepatitis virus. It's oral nasal. Contact is oral nasal with exposure to urine, feces, and saliva of infected dogs. And again, any fomite, any fomite is an inanimate object, although technically our hands could be a fomite, but a brush, a leash, a comb, a mop, a mop bucket, a rag, a bowl, a dog collar, any of that can can be a fomite if it's come in contact with an in in um, urine feces or saliva of an infected dog. So what does the virus like to go once it gets inside the body? The tropism, the viral tropism is for vascular endothelial cells across the entire body, which includes the liver, the kidney, the spleen, the lungs, and the eye. Those are all very heavily vascularized organs. And when you have a, a virus that attacks the lining, the endothelium is the lining of blood vessels that's going to get that spread across the entire body. The virus is a non-enveloped DNA virus. Now, in the last episode, when I had talked about the stemper, the stemper is an enveloped virus, and it's easy to kill. Non-enveloped viruses are a little bit more difficult to kill. And one of the issues with these non-enveloped viruses, they're very persistent in the environment, and they can last for many, many months. So it takes a lot to kill a non-enveloped virus, such as steam or 1% to 3% bleach solution will destroy canine antivirus one. The incubation is four to nine days, about a week, generally speaking. That's how I like to remember things. Most of these diseases, the incubation is about up to one week, give or take. And once an animal is ill and it's recovered, it will send virus in the urine. Now, this is if the animal does have, have one or infectious canine hepatitis, it will shed the virus in the urine for up to six months or more. And that is quite a long time. So any of you people that take dogs to dog parks, Here's another reason why not to, especially for a puppy that has not received its complete vaccinations. And again, I recommend several weeks after its last vaccination to bring a puppy to a dog park. So what's the pathophysiology? What is actually happening inside an animal's body? What damage is the virus causing inside the body? So initially, the tonsils are infected with the virus. And the tonsils are just lymph nodes in the back of the throat or back of the mouth. They get infected, and then the virus spreads to other lymph nodes, and then from there it goes into the bloodstream, and you get what's called a viremia, where now the virus is spread throughout the entire body, which you can see if it's in the blood, it's going to affect the, the lining of the blood vessels, right? That endothelial lining, those endothelial cells. And that causes vasculitis. And vasculitis, as, as we learned, itis is, any, is, is a reference of Latin to inflammation. So vasculitis, you get inflammation of the blood vessels. And when you get inflammation of the blood vessels, you get leaking of the blood vessels. And nothing really good ever comes from that. There's hepatocellular necrosis. So that's the liver cells are dying. Necrosis references dying. And you end up with hepatitis, although dogs are typically not icteric. Icteric means that animals are yellow and certain liver diseases. You can see icterus in the mucous membranes and the sclera. The sclera is a white part of the eye. And you can see bright yellow. And, it, and even if it's 
if the icterus is, is bad enough, you can actually see it in the skin, especially in the ears. And from there, you get coagulopathy and thrombosis. The liver is responsible for numerous clotting factors. And if the liver is not functioning properly, it's not going to produce clotting factors necessary. So animals are going to throw clots and or have hemorrhages. And we had talked about DIC. I can't remember what episode that was. But again, DIC is a, a, is a possible complication. We get immune complex deposition throughout the body. Remember, I mentioned that vasculitis. Well, after a period of about a week to two weeks, the body is going to start mounting an immune response. And that immune response is going to damage the kidneys with a disease called glomerulonephritis, which is the depth which you get the deposition of immune complexes in the kidneys and then damaging the function of the kidneys and then uveitis. I'm going to put up a, a nice link for uh, what the uvea is. The uvea is the very vascularized component of the eye. And with uveitis, again, uh, I had mentioned vasculitis. You get uveitis, you get inflammation in the eye, and then you'll see that there's there can be quote-unquote bloodshot eyes, or sometimes if it's near the iris, if it's anterior uveitis, you can see a, a cloudy look around the iris and sometimes the pupil. There can be comorbidities that make this disease much worse, and that would be diseases such as distemper and parvo. It's going to be obviously much more difficult for a dog to fend off a multi, multiple viral diseases at one time. So clinical pathology, we haven't really talked much about this. I've, I've hinted at it a few times, but clinical pathology is, is just diving a little bit deeper into the pathophysiology of what's actually happening to, for example, cells that we can measure, that we can count using blood tests. So there's thrombocytopenia, thrombocytes are platelets, so we get a depression in the amount of platelets in the body. We get leukopenia. Leukopenia is just a, a generic term for suppression of white blood cells across the board, and the more severe the leukopenia, usually the more severe the disease in the animal. With that hepatocellular necrosis, aka also you could think of it as that hepatitis term, you get increased ALT and AST. ALT is alanine aminotransferase, which is a sign of hepatocellular damage. These are these two enzymes are produced in the liver cells and AST. They're also produced in muscle cells, an example, but Primarily, AOT is coming from the liver. AST is aspartate transferase. Again, that's coming primarily from liver cells, but it can also come from muscle cells. And these two, um, they've taken on a blood test, a serum chemistry, it's called, and they'll peak two weeks after the infection. And also with hepatocellular damage, you can have hepatic encephalopathy, which means that any um, food that the dog eats, so when a dog eats, eats, right? It's chewing the food, it goes into its intestines, and then the portal vein drains the intestines into the liver. And in the liver, you get the breakdown of protein into amino acids and, and uh, ammonia. And the problem with that is if the liver's not functioning properly, then you get ammonia buildup in the blood. And then later on, you'll learn that that can cause seizures. We can get chronic kidney disease, even if the patient recovers. And we can get proteinuria, which we can measure through a urinalysis. And that would be a marker of kidney damage. DIC, which I had mentioned, 
right? Because we have clotting problems with the liver. We have vasculitis. So the, the clotting system is triggered. The clotting cascade is triggered and you're also getting thrombocytopenia. So you're just animals really ripe for uh, DIC. So clinical signs, what can we actually see in these patients? Initially, there's a high fever, of 104 to 106. Remember, dogs generally are, their body temperature around, their normal body temperature is about 101 to 102. It can be 101.5 to 102.5, so there's going to be a slight range. Fahrenheit, it can go up to 104, 106 with hepatitis. Conjunctivitis, we can get reddening of the mucosa of the eyes, around the eyes, right, in the, inside the eyelids. We can get a serious serious, a serous, S-E-R-O-U-S, not serious, serous, so that's basic, basically mucoid. Ocular nasal discharge, which I, again I had mentioned can happen with distemper, although distemper is usually mucopurulent. We get corneal edema, which is called blue eye, and the corneal edema is happening because the virus is getting into the chloride and it's getting into the cornea itself, and then those immune complexes are being laid down by the body to fight the virus, and so you can get a cloudy eye, and it's called blue eye. Typically, that occurs about seven days after the acute clinical signs are over. We can get abdominal pain, and again, that's going to be caused by the hepatitis, vomiting, and here's a new term that we haven't talked about before, hematemesis, which is bloody vomit. So with that vasculitis and clotting problems, there can be bleeding into the stomach, and then the animal's going to vomit that up. I had already mentioned uveitis, or inflammation of the blood vessels in the eye. We can get bleeding, especially around the puppy teeth. We can get petechial and echomotic hemorrhages. Petechial hemorrhages are small, pinpoint, one, maybe two millimeters of bleeding in, um, in the skin, in the mouth. And then we can get echemotic hemorrhages, which are typically called paintbrush hemorrhages, which are just um, large swaths, if you will, of um, bleeding under the skin or in the mucous membranes. There can be edema in the subcutaneous tissues of the head and neck. And up into the brain again, right, there's blood vessels that feed the brain. So we can have a bleeding in the brain, which is a hemorrhagic stroke which can also lead to ataxia, paresis, which is loss of feeling of the limbs, and then paralysis, which is loss of use of the limbs. Ataxia, I mentioned the animal can stagger around. Typically, apparently, this is more common in fox. So if you see a fox staggering around, it's potentially infectious canine hepatitis. And then I had mentioned the uh, seizures caused by the potential hepatic encephalopathy, but it can also be caused by this bleeding of the brain. That's quite a few clinical signs. Diagnosis, anti-mortem, anti-mortem meaning while the patient's still alive, which is extremely common now is PCR. PCR is looking for the genetic piece of the virus, and it could be from saliva, it could be from urine, it could be from feces, what have you. And PCR can differentiate from the CAV1 and the CAV2. So sometimes that's important to know. It can be taken by uh, other blood tests, ELISA, which is a lab test looking for antigen or antibodies, depending on how the test is set up, or serology measuring titers. But titers would take a little bit longer. PCR would be done probably within the first week. 
as long as the animal is shedding virus. I haven't mentioned this much, but post-mortem, meaning the patient has deceased and, and there's been, we don't call them autopsies, but we call them necropsies in veterinary medicine. Pathognomonic, that's a classic, meaning a classic sign is gallbladder edema, the walls of the gallbladder are thickened. And if you were to look at liver cells, the liver is basically lumpy, bumpy, and off color, you're going to get intranuclear inclusions, and that's pretty classic for infectious canine hepatitis. Treatments, there is no specific antiviral treatment for this disease. It's supportive care, supportive care meaning that you're going to administer IV fluids, antibiotics, you're going to manage the clinical signs of the patient. If they need blood products or clotting factors or plasma, that's going to be administered. Uh, feeding tubes, it, it just really depends. Every patient is going to be different based on the severity of the disease. So recovery, most dogs will recover. This is primarily a disease of young dogs. Um, I read one year or less, but especially puppies that are unvaccinated or born to mothers that do not have immunity to it because the puppies are getting immunity from their mother for the first up to about 12 weeks. That's pretty long, but about 12, up to about 12 weeks of age with the maternal antibodies, they're starting to wane. So the maternal antibodies are going to peak very early as the puppy's nurse, and it's going to wane over time. And that's what gives the puppies immunity. But if the mother was never exposed to infectious canine hepatitis, then puppies will not have antibodies. So that's not great. Mortality can range anywhere from 10, from 10 to 30% of these young dogs. Now, duration of immunity to natural infection and vaccination is probably lifelong. And you are able to measure titers. Some of the commercial labs don't seem to have a CAV1 or CAV2 test, but through my research, I found that the University of Wisconsin does have a test to check uh, what I believe is serology, a, a blood draw, and then you can measure antibodies. So if you're concerned about over-vaccination, that would be something to talk to your veterinarian about. Talk about the links. Okay, so the first link I'm going to put up is from AHA. AHA is the American Animal Hospital Association. It took me a little bit to remember. I didn't want to mess that up, so I'm seeing it here on the website. So AHA publishes guidelines for many different issues. I'm um, seeing here anesthesia, antimicrobials, diabetes, management, dental care, etc. But they also have a um, AHA guidelines for uh, vaccines. Okay, so the page that I'm linking you to is recommendations for core and what are called non-core vaccines. Core means they recommend that for basically every dog and non-core would have to be discussed between you and your veterinarian. And I had mentioned that distemper, adenovirus, parvo, and parainfluenza are core vaccines. And then uh, the only other core vaccine would be rabies. Everything else is going to be based on the geography and the lifestyle and the risk of exposure to each animal. And again, as I mentioned, that should be discussed with your veterinarian. So the AHA guidelines are really good for you to take a look at. The next link is going to be from the Merck Veterinary Manual. It's a, a really good overview of infectious canine hepatitis. The next link is on PubMed. 
And that's a really good write-up on infectious canine hepatitis. Slightly different, but really, really good. It's from a book called Canine and Feline Infectious Diseases, published by the company Elsevier. Elsevier is a, a rather large um, publisher and distributor. So some great information there. You go to the next link. Okay, the next link is from PubMed again. And this is a paper called Serological Survey for Diseases in Free-Ranging Coyotes in Yellowstone National Park. And the abstract is just fascinating. So this is this is going back about 30 years, but it, it doesn't really matter because it's just fascinating. And, it, and, and the more you, number one, let me just make a, a recommendation. If you're not using PubMed, you should be. PubMed, I, I always felt when I was in school and then after I got out of school and, and was doing research on, on separate issues, PubMed really holds all the information that you're going to need. Most everything has been done. Maybe not recently, but it could be quite a while ago. PubMed is an excellent resource for you to be using. And I'd recommend people become familiar with it because there is a there there are not really tricks, but it takes experience to start researching things. Depending on how you write things in, that's how the database is searched. And it is a great tool. It's free. It doesn't cost you anything. There are many articles that are free or not behind a paywall. Most of the older articles are behind a paywall. They're a little bit more difficult to get. But most of the time, especially in I said the last 40 or 50 years, there's what's called an abstract, which is basically like the summary of the paper, which can give you a flavor. And then if you want to do any further digging behind a paywall, you'll have to pay for that. But anyway, let me get back to this study from Yellowstone. So prevalence, so they measured antibodies from 110 coyotes. So obviously they had to sedate the coyotes and they did a physical and they pulled blood. So prevalence, that's the amount of antibodies that are just naturally occurring in the population. Against canine parvovirus, which we've already talked about, was 100% in animals and adults. I'm just going to skip. I'm not going to give you all of the uh, breakdowns. They did uh, adults and then yearlings and then puppies. So 100% of uh, adult ca uh, coyotes had antibodies to parvovirus. Uh, the next one, canine distemper. Uh, the adults, 88% had been exposed, have antibodies to distemper. The prevalence of infectious canine hepatitis in adults, 97%. So remember I had mentioned endemic. That's how these diseases can be maintained because here you have a susceptible dog, right? Coyotes are, are in the same family. And subfamily is dogs, right? They the family Canidae and the subfamily Canidae. And they're all in that lineage, so they can transmit these diseases. And I'd mentioned a dog that recovers can spread this disease for six months. So coyotes continue to have puppies. The puppies get exposed. Some die. Some survive. The survivors are shedding the virus into the environment. And let's see, that was uh, canine hepatitis. And they mentioned some uh, some bacteria, and I'm not going to talk about this, but this is a fascinating little uh, abstract to read. So you can see that I do like to do my research here. So it's it's always interesting when you're getting on PubMed and, and what you can find. There's more on PubMed that you could ever read in your lifetime.
And then the last link is a fact frequently asked questions to the School of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Wisconsin. And that's where I came across that they have a an antibody test for canine adenovirus. So things are available, tests are available, might take a little bit longer. And especially again, those of you that are concerned about vaccinations and antibodies, this is a great tool to, to read about. And then if you choose to discuss with your veterinarian. Well, I've had a great time this past year working on this podcast for myself and for you. I hope you've enjoyed it. I usually don't ask you for reviews, but if you can review the podcast, that would be wonderful. I take it most people are relatively pleased because I haven't received any email complaints, so that's good. I thank you for listening. I hope you and your loved ones are safe and happy and healthy this season, and I will see you in 2024. Thank you.